It's the Victorian Variety Show. I have long believed that a well-known appearance observed in vacuum tubes is closely related to the phenomena of the mean free path of the molecules. When the negative pole is examined, while the discharge from an induction coil is passing through an exhausted tube, a dark space is seen to surround it. This dark space is found to increase and diminish as the vacuum is varied, in the same way that the mean free path of the molecules lengthens and contracts. As the one is perceived by the mind's eye to get greater, so the other is seen by the bodily eye to increase in size. And if the vacuum is insufficient to permit much play of the molecules before they enter into collision, the passage of electricity shows that the dark space has shrunk to small dimensions. We naturally infer that the dark space is the mean free path of the molecules of the residual gas, an inference confirmed by experiment. I will endeavor to render this dark space visible to all present. Here is a tube having a pole in the center in the form of a metal disc and other poles at each end. The center pole is made negative and the two end poles connected together are made the positive terminal. The dark space will be in the center. When the exhaustion is not very great, the dark space extends only a little on each side of the negative pole in the center. When the exhaustion is good, as in the tube before you, and I turn on the coil, the dark space is seen to extend for about an inch on each side of the pole. Here, then, we see the induction spark actually illuminating the lines of molecular pressure caused by the excitement of the negative pole. The thickness of this dark space is the measure of the mean free path between successive collisions of the molecules of the residual gas. The extra velocity with which the negatively electrified molecules rebound from the excited pole keeps back the more slowly moving molecules which are advancing towards that pole. A conflict occurs at the boundary of the dark space where the luminous margin bears witness to the energy of the discharge. Therefore, the residual gas, or as I prefer to call it, the gaseous residue within the dark space is in an entirely different state to that of the residual gas in vessels at a lower degree of exhaustion. To quote the words of our last year's president in his address at Dublin, In the exhausted column, we have a vehicle for electricity not constant like an ordinary conductor, but itself modified by the passage of the discharge, and perhaps subject to laws differing materially from those which it obeys at atmospheric pressure. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, my bi-weekly look at phenomena from the Victorian era that I find weird, wonderful, or worrisome. Some of the topics I look at easily qualify for two of those categories, and there's probably at least one that qualifies for all three, but that will require an explanation I'm not going to make today. But I'm comfortable covering the ones that fall into at least one, and often two categories, especially if they fall into the weird category, which, I need to emphasize, does not mean bad. When I use it, it just means it's very different from what's considered the norm today. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from On Radiant Matter, a lecture delivered to the British Association for the Advancement of Science at Sheffield on Friday, August 22, 1879, by chemist and physicist Sir William Crookes, 
a name that sounded very familiar to me recently when I came across it in the book that I'm currently reading, Ghosts I Have Seen and Other Psychic Experiences, a 1919 book by Violet Tweedale. I'm sure right now you're probably like... Wondering how I went from molecules and gases and dark space to ghosts? And I totally get that. But hear me out. At one point in chapter three of her book, Tweedale writes, quote, Sir William Crookes has given to the world a very interesting account of his work in weighing mediums before and during materialization. He always found that a great decrease in weight took place during the materializations, proving how enormous is the drain on the strength of the medium, end quote. Now, Normally, as a fan of paranormal TV shows that frequently call in psychic mediums, some of whom I find way more convincing than others, but I won't go into that right now, I probably think, hmm, that's interesting, and make a mental note to do a little more research on this topic when I finish reading, and knowing me, forget about it until it randomly popped into my head later that day. But instead, I was like, whoa, is that the guy who invented the Crooks tube, which I briefly discussed in my episode on x-rays back in June? I couldn't wait to find out, so I turned to Google, and sure enough, he was the man behind the Crooks tube, and a number of other important scientific discoveries. But in addition to that, according to an article by Miguel Barral called The Ghosts of William Crooks, he had an quote, ambiguous relationship with the world of spiritualism and the paranormal, a dark period in his life to which he devoted four years, and which almost ended his scientific career and ruined his reputation, end quote. At this point, I was like, ooh, because I devoted an episode to Victorian-era spiritualism very early on, and as a topic that tends to keep popping up if you're interested in the Victorian era. And I've also mentioned the widespread interest in science and technological innovation during the Victorian era in a number of episodes. So coming across someone who can be discussed in both contexts is the sort of thing I live for as a podcast host. So, discussing Sir William in both contexts is exactly what I've decided to do. In this episode, I'll give you a bit of background on his career as a scientist and some of his better-known discoveries. And in my next episode in two weeks, I will take a closer look at his interest in spiritualism and paranormal phenomena. William Crookes was born in London in 1832. And according to Wikipedia, his father, Joseph Crookes, was a wealthy tailor and real estate investor. In an article called Crook's Tube, Andrea Sellis says Joseph got young William interested in photography, and at one point even built him a lab in the basement of the family house. At age 16, William entered the Royal College of Chemistry and began studying organic chemistry, which Wikipedia defines as, quote, the study of the structure, properties, and reactions of organic compounds and organic materials, end quote under the renowned German chemist August Wilhelm von Hoffmann. At the end of his second year, William became Hoffmann's junior assistant and eventually was promoted to senior assistant. Wikipedia explains also that despite his reverence for Hoffmann, William eventually made the acquaintance of John Barlow, an Anglican priest and secretary of the Royal Institution of Great Britain, through whom he met Irish physicist and mathematician Sir George Gabriel Stokes and English scientist Michael Faraday, and the relationships William developed with these eminent men inspired a strong interest in optical physics, 
which is defined by Wikipedia as, quote, the study of the generation of electromagnetic radiation, the properties of that radiation, and the interaction of that radiation with matter, especially its manipulation and control, end quote. Much of Williams' early scholarly work seems to have been in the field of scientific photography, which Sellis says he quote-unquote pioneered. In 1854, at the Radcliffe Observatory at Oxford, where the National Mag Lab says he was overseeing the meteorology department, William adapted wax paper photography, which was apparently used for photographic negatives in the 1850s, and he edited publications like the Journal of the Photographic Society and the Photographic News at different points in his life. However, his career as a chemist appears not to have taken a backseat to photography. He founded the Chemical News, described by Sella as, quote, a cheap weekly pamphlet that reported the latest chemical developments, end quote, in 1859, the same year the two German scientists, physicist Gustav Robert Kirchhoff and chemist Robert Wilhelm Eberhard Bunsen, developed the spectroscope, which is used to view characteristic spectra of the colors of heated elements. Wikipedia explains that William was enthusiastic about Kirchhoff and Bunsen's work, which is known as spectral analysis or spectroscopy, and began searching for unclaimed spectroscopic lines in mineral samples in his home laboratory, where, at that point, he appears to have been working full-time after receiving a large sum of money from his father, according to National Maglab. In 1861, William discovered a previously unknown element whose spectrum contained a bright green emission line, and named it thallium, after the Greek word for a young green shoot or twig, thallos. Although this discovery led to Williams being elected as a fellow to the Royal Society of London in 1863, he continued working with thallium for over a decade, studying its properties and compounds and such, and ultimately determined the element's atomic weight in 1873. As a side note, it appears French chemist Claude-Auguste Lamy independently discovered thallium. I don't know exactly when, but Wikipedia notes that William and Lamy both isolated the element in 1862, and since I'm not the most knowledgeable person when it comes to sciences, I'm not sure how often scientists independently discover the same thing. But I remember that while doing research for my mini-sode on the zoetrope back in January, I found out that the phenakistoscope, which was one of the zoetrope's predecessors, was invented around the same time by two men who'd been working independently. Belgian physicist Joseph Plateau, and Austrian professor Simon Stampfer. So, I have heard of stuff kind of like this happening, and what can I say? I guess great minds think alike. Sella explains that William Crookes continued to develop more sensitive ways of weighing small objects, such as slivers of mica and pithballs, with the help of his assistant, Charles Gimmingham. And it appears that these experiments led to the development of both the radiometer, or quote-unquote light mill, and the aforementioned Crookes tube. Crookes radiometer consisted of four foil veins, each of which was blackened on one side, that were suspended from a thin glass cross on the tip of the needle, and spun when exposed to light. And William theorized that pressure exerted by the light prompted the spinning. However, he was proven wrong by scientists such as German physicist Arthur Schuster, Russian physicist Pyotr Lebedev, and University of Manchester professor Osborne Reynolds, all of whom demonstrated that the speed of the veins was caused by forces generated inside the bulb, such as gas pressure. According to Sella, William, quote, 
quietly and reluctantly conceded, end quote, that his theory about the radiometer had been incorrect, and turned his attention to studying cathode rays, which are actually quote-unquote streams of particles that are negatively charged, such as electrodes, according to the Division of Chemical Education at Purdue University. Using partially evacuated glass tubes that had metal plates sealed inside, William found that as he lowered gas pressure, the cathodes appeared to emit quote-unquote rays that he believed traveled in straight lines and caused a fluorescent glow to appear when they landed on certain substances. Objects placed in the paths of the rays cast shadows on the tube walls that were opposite the cathode. These findings led William to conclude that he discovered a fourth state of matter, referred to as quote-unquote radiant matter. Sella calls William's conclusion quote-unquote half-right and doesn't really explain why, so I turned to National Mag Lab for clarification, and as far as I can tell, it seems William was mistaken in attributing the fluorescence to cathode rays, which he theorized were composed of molecules of normal size, rather than to the interaction of electrons, negatively charged subatomic particles that were first identified by British physicist Sir Joseph John Thompson in 1897. In other words, it seems that the reasoning behind William's findings was incorrect, but the findings themselves were important, inspiring Thompson's work, as well as that of Wilhelm Röntgen, who, as discussed in my X-ray episode, used tubes similar to those used by William to develop X-rays in the mid-1890s. It is important to note that William Crookes was not the first 19th century scientist to use glass tubes like this. National Mag Lab notes that Faraday used comparable tubes as far back as the 1830s, along with German physicists like Heinrich Geisler, who produced glass vacuum tubes for both scientific purposes and entertainment in the 1850s, and Julius Plücker and Johann Hittorf, who discovered glows of different colors by increasing the vacuum in Geisler tubes and observed the shadows that were cast when objects were placed in front of cathodes. According to National Maglab, quote, sealed glass tubes encasing a cathode and an anode are most commonly called Crookes tubes, possibly because the tubes used by Crookes during his investigations, which were formed by a skilled instrument maker and could be evacuated to about 1-100 millimeters of mercury, were the best produced up to that time or perhaps because Crookes published so many foundational papers recounting his experiments with the tubes that they became indelibly linked with his name, end quote. According to Wikipedia, and I apologize that I've cited Wikipedia so much in this episode, but I have a tendency to do that with my scientific episodes just to give a basis for some of these theories and fields of science because I'm not knowledgeable on them myself. After 1880, William Crookes carried out all of his later work in, quote, the finest private laboratory in Britain, end quote, which took up an entire floor of his house in the, quote-unquote, fashionable Notting Hill area of London, and included three separate lab rooms that were interconnected, as well as a library. Wikipedia also notes that he was able to build and maintain the house and labs thanks to a position as director of the Native Guano Company, a London company which, Anthony S. Travis tells us in Introduction, Food or Famine, converted human waste into fertilizer. Yeah, I know. From 1871 to 1880, and some patents. 
In the mid-1890s, Williams studied argon, which had been identified a few years earlier, and while he is not credited with discovering that gas, he noticed that it displayed two distinct spectra, which led to his identification of terrestrial helium. A few years later, in 1903, he focused his studies on radioactivity and later conducted research on glass formulations that would protect the eyes of foundry and glass workers from glare. He also became president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1898 and edited the chemical news for many years, possibly until his death in 1919, based on Sella's article, but I'm not totally sure that that's when he stopped working for chemical news. So that's a brief recap of the scientific career of Sir William Crookes. I apologize if I left anything out, but my intention was to give you a short explanation of some of his better-known discoveries, as well as some insight into how his work was received and how he reacted on learning some of his theories were incorrect. National Maglab explains that even though many of Crookes' findings were later discounted, he maintained an open mind and a willingness to acknowledge, quote, the ascendancy of better interpretations of his experimental work than he had been able to develop at the time, end quote. Characteristics that will be important to keep in mind when we consider his interest in paranormal and psychic phenomena in my next episode. And now, I would like to know what you think. Also, like Sir William Crookes, I try to keep an open mind. But, unlike Sir William Crookes, I don't have much of a scientific background, as I've already gone into, and as would be obvious if I hadn't gone into it. So if there's anything I got wrong, please let me know. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com, or send me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. Also, although I barely post there anymore, you can still find me on Twitter, or X or whatever it's called now, at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1, and also on threads at threads.net slash at marissadf13. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents US a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash support. Or you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 on my link tree at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show, one word, or on the Good Pods app if you're listening to the show there. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support of this show. I hope you're enjoying getting to know Sir William Crooks, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you another side of his rather interesting life in my next episode. But for now, I'm going to read you part of the conclusion of Sir William Crooks' 1879 lecture on radiant matter. The entire text is about 30 pages long, and on many of those pages, William discusses the procedures he used in conducting his studies, as well as photos and illustrations of his equipment. And much of it is over my head, but I'm including this excerpt because I feel it gives us a good sense of the passion William had for his scientific work and his optimism, which I think exemplifies the spirit of wonder that we see time and again when we consider the widespread interest in the sciences and innovation during the Victorian era. 
To suggest some idea of this vast number, I take the exhausted bulb and perforate it by a spark from the induction coil. The spark produces a hole of microscopical fineness, yet sufficient to allow molecules to penetrate and destroy the vacuum. The inrush of air impinges against the veins and sets them rotating after the manner of a windmill. Let us suppose the molecules to be of such a size that at every second of time a hundred millions could enter. How long, think you, would it take for this small vessel to get full of air? An hour? A day? A year? A century? Nay, almost an eternity. A time so enormous that imagination itself cannot grasp the reality. Supposing this exhausted glass bulb, endued with indestructibility, had been pierced at the birth of the solar system, supposing it to have been present when the earth was without form and void, supposing it to have borne witness to all the stupendous changes evolved during the full cycles of geologic time, to have seen the first living creature appear and the last man disappear. Supposing it to survive until the fulfillment of the mathematician's prediction that the sun, the source of energy, four million centuries from its formation, will ultimately become a burned-out cinder. Supposing all this, at the rate of filling I have just described, 100 million molecules a second, this little bulb even then would scarcely have admitted its full quadrillion of molecules. But what will you say if I tell you that all these molecules, this quadrillion of molecules, will enter through the microscopic hole before you leave this room? The hole being unaltered in size, the number of molecules undiminished, this apparent paradox can only be explained by again supposing the size of the molecules to be diminished almost infinitely, so that instead of entering at the rate of 100 millions every second, they troop in at a rate of something like 300 trillions a second. I have done the sum, but figures when they mount so high cease to have any meaning, and such calculations are as futile as trying to count the drops in the ocean. In studying this fourth state of matter, we seem at length to have within our grasp and obedient to our control the little indivisible particles which, with good warrant, are supposed to constitute the physical basis of the universe. We have seen that in some of its properties, radiant matter is as material as this table, whilst in other properties, it almost assumes the character of radiant energy. We have actually touched the borderland where matter and force seem to merge into one another, the shadowy realm between known and unknown, which, for me, has always had peculiar temptations. I venture to think that the greatest scientific problems of the future will find their solution in this borderland, and even beyond. Here, it seems to me, lie ultimate realities, subtle, far-reaching, wonderful.